Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost, uh, a word referring to uh, the passing of 50 days from one of the most important festivals in the, in the Jewish year. And like everything else in those, uh, in those, those pivotal moments in human history when Jesus was, was making the transition of the ages, he took something that had been of profound importance in the past and he breathed new life and new meaning into it. So instead of the festival of the weeks that it had been for the Jewish people, it became for us the birthday of the church of Jesus Christ. Not the beginning of an organization or an institution, but that day that the prophets from ancient history had been telling about for centuries, when the spirit of the living God would be given to every man, woman, and child who wants to have a real relationship with God. You no longer have a God who is just somewhere in heaven that you're hoping to please, but a God who will come and live inside men and women, be with us in the closest possible sense of that word. That same Holy Spirit who was given on that first day of Pentecost to every person who professed faith in Jesus Christ also speaks to his church today. And so we're going to take a look at another one of the letters from the beginning of the book of Revelation, and we're going to ask God's Holy Spirit to please come and speak to us, to take the words from antiquity and make them new and living truths for us today. You want that? Then pray with me. Lord Jesus, we bow before you one more time, and we remember this this pivotal moment in human history when your Holy Spirit, in grand display, was poured out upon the earth. We love how the prophet Joel described it. Men and women, young and old, will receive your Holy Spirit. It includes us. So we want to say a collective, yes, please, I'd like some more. And to thank you today. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us. Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to the church? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we began a new sermon series that's looking at those seven letters that open the book of Revelation. Letters from Jesus to seven real-life churches in ancient Turkey. Those letters appear in the opening chapters of the, the Bible's final book, which is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The book, I believe, that is most misunderstood of all 66 books of the Bible. While it does contain some apocalyptic and prophetic literature, its primary purpose isn't to scare or to entertain Christians with speculative and argumentative guessing about some timeline regarding the end of the world. That, however, is about all that's been done with the book of Revelation by the American church in my lifetime. Instead, the book is intended to put Jesus at center stage and to reveal him to the world as its Savior and its Lord. So, um, a little bit of a poll this morning. I may be completely by myself here today, but is there anybody else here who hears 
um, kind of background soundtracks, you know, movie style as you're reading. Anybody else do that? Just me. Okay, and you too. You're as weird as I am. Okay, all right. Yeah, well, if you're the people who hear background music, when you're reading the book of Revelation, it shouldn't be dun-dun-dun. It should be more like ta-da! And then there is Jesus standing at center stage in all of his glory, receiving all the applause that is due him. Okay, that's how the book of Revelation was intended to be read. We learned last week that each of the letters from Jesus to the seven churches were written down by Jesus' friend John, and that they were also supposed to be conveyed to those churches by this strange quote, the angels of the churches. The Greek word for angel means messenger, and so we begin to get the idea that the messages that Jesus had for each of these churches were very, very important because he assigned both a human messenger and some spiritual being called an angel to make sure that the letters, the message of the letters, got to the members of those churches. If you missed last week's message, I did a little more background there, and uh, maybe you could you could catch that if you're interested on the podcast, Lessons from First Naz. You can find that on the uh, firstnaz.com website, or uh, you can subscribe to it at iTunes. You just go to the podcast page, search for Lessons from First Naz. You can subscribe there. Um, so we're, we're reading someone else's mail, and we're seeing if God perhaps has a message for us and our church in it. And we're counting on his Holy Spirit to turn on the lights for us as we read Jesus' letter to the church at a city called Smyrna. And before we read that letter, though, I want to tell you a little bit about Smyrna because I think it'll help you understand the letter a little bit better. Last week, we read Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, which is on the west coast of ancient Turkey. Smyrna was a huge city, about 200,000 people, and it lay about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was a stunningly beautiful city and an important place because it had a long-standing favorable relationship with the uh, Roman Empire. It was a seaport and a river port, and it became a very wealthy city. A religious capital had uh, at least six incredible temples that were built on this one street, referred to as uh, the Golden Street or the the Golden Avenue. One of those temples was uh, of significance because it was the first ever built in honor of Tiberius Caesar, who claimed to be a god. The Smyrnans decided that uh, they believed him. And they became his worshipers. And so Roman money began to to flow into the city of Smyrna, along with government-sponsored building projects and lots of jobs. And the place was very prosperous. Soon, Smyrna became known by its own self-chosen marketing phrase, first in Asia. No humility there. We're the best city in all of Asia, Smyrna said. But they shared that title in the eyes of Rome with two other cities, Ephesus and Pergamum. One of the temples there was was really more important than any of the others. Its goddess and her religion gave real shape to the culture of the city. Her name was Sibylle, and she was believed to be the mother of all of the Greek and Roman gods. Her religion, the one that developed around her, would seem pretty strange to us because she was believed to live in the mountains, but she had such a such a powerful connection with the earth itself that she actually was thought to live in the soil. She wore a crown on her head whenever people made carvings of her, and it was a a crown that mimicked the skyline of the impressive city of Smyrna. 
So to think of Sibylle was to think of Smyrna, and to think of Smyrna was to think of Sibylle. The city skyline became known as the crown of Smyrna. Have you ever uh, watched a sunset over our hill here? Watch it as it as it turns orange and then pink and then gold and then each of those as it disappears behind the we call it the Lewiston Hill though it stretches way over there. You ever you ever come down the Palouse and just popped over that last hill and seen our whole valley beautiful as it is laying out before you and just started praising your God for the beautiful things that He's made. Yeah, that's what people did when they came by sea or over land to Smyrna, except they were singing the praises of Sibylle. They'd remember her and give thanks to her. In order to understand the letter to the church in Smyrna, you have to understand that they didn't believe the goddess stuff was made up. When you and I read Greek and Roman mythology, we think myth means lie. We all know these are made-up stories. But the word myth actually means religious story or an, a religious explanation for things that we have observed. And so mythology isn't another culture's lies. It's, it's, it's deeply held religious beliefs. In order to understand Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna, you have to understand that they really believed in their goddess. They believed she was real. And as the protector of their town, she had their loyalty and their affection. As the mother of all the gods, she was given a place of special honor in their belief system. Even more so than Zeus himself, she was esteemed as worthy of honor. They called her, the people of Smyrna did, the first and the last. As the mother of the gods, she had existed before all of them. And if you remember any Greek and Roman mythology, the gods were constantly squaring off against each other and against mankind. And the thought was that after those gods have done all that they're going to do and and the dust has settled, we'll see who's left. And among them we know will be Sibylle, the great and beautiful goddess, the first and the last what really amounted to just a, a few years prior to Jesus having John write a letter to the Christians in Smyrna, there was some Jesus follower, unknown to history. He or she made their way to that important city and walked among its temples and its people and began to share another religious story. It was a story of another God, one who had literally come to earth. He didn't live in the earth. He came to it lived as a man, but proved himself to be a god by working numerous miracles that were observed by tens of thousands of people. By controlling a storm, the weather, and a large body of water, he'd proven himself to be more powerful than the Greek and Roman gods of those things. By creating food for thousands and and withering a fruit tree with his mere words when it refused to give up food to him, he proved himself to be more powerful than their agricultural gods. By raising children from the dead and, and giving them uh, back to their parents, he'd shown himself to be greater than the Greek and Roman fertility gods. They might give children, but they didn't resurrect them from the dead. He lived sinlessly. He died selflessly and as a willing sacrifice for the entire human race, willingly taking upon himself the guilt and the punishment for the sins of every man, woman, teen, and child who would ever live. He died 
Three days later, he rose again from the dead and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And in so doing, he showed himself to be more powerful than their gods of death and Hades. His name was Jesus. This Jesus, the missionary to Smyrna also claimed, had been the God who much earlier had created the entire universe and all of the things in it, and he claimed to be eternal. And as such, he would really be the God who had rightful claim to the term the first and the last. In fact, that's how Jesus identifies himself in the letter to the church at Smyrna. Let's read his letter together. Stand with me, if you would, in honor of the Jesus who is the first and the last. I've mentioned the names of other gods before you this morning, Father. Let me just make it clear. You alone will be worshipped in this place. Praises will be lifted your direction alone. We do not trust our lives into the hands of any other gods. Just to you. We want to hear the message that you first intended for the church at Smyrna. Holy Spirit, would you turn on the lights for us, we pray. Amen. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Jesus said, write these words. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and I will give you, and and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sounds like things were pretty tough on the believers in Smyrna, doesn't it? Afflictions, poverty, slander, suffering to come, prison, maybe even martyrdom. You know, I said at one point last week that um, at first glance, the church in Ephesus looked really solid and like the kind of church that I'd like to be a part of. I got to tell you, with everything that was happening to the church at Smyrna, I'm really not interested in being a part of that outfit. Not because of who they were, not because of some character deficiency on their part, but because of what was happening to that church. The Jesus followers in Smyrna were under immense pressure, the kind that nobody ever is quick to sign up for. But when we take a second look, there are some very good things about this church that that might make me reconsider. Uh, To begin with, Jesus seemed to have no complaints about this church. Remember the letter to the Ephesian church? He said, oh, there's great things happening there, but i got something against you. The worst thing that you can ever hear from God. I've got something against you. Didn't say anything like that to the church at Smyrna. No complaints. He seemed to be proud of them. He said that he saw them as spiritually rich. 
You know, in the Bible's Old Testament, back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we learn a very important spiritual principle. While humans judge one another based on what we can see and what we can guess about one another, outward appearances, the Lord has the ability to see the condition and the intent of our hearts, and he makes his evaluations of us based on that knowledge. In the letter to the Smyrnans, Jesus said, when I look at your outward circumstances, I see what you're going through, and it is some tough stuff. There are people who are intentionally making your lives painful. They were facing religious persecution and oppression, which evidently began with, you know, just the the kind of social shunning that makes it difficult to break into the circle, but then became financial sanctions where uh, Christians couldn't shop here or Christians were charged much higher prices. And that financial oppression was soon joined by official government persecution. And then a a competing religious group, the Jews in that city, decided that they did not like the Christians at all. And they began to persecute them. Somehow their oppression then had taken on the shape of poverty. How do you respond to life's pressures when you're in a financial pinch? You find yourself at your best, at your strongest, when you're feeling the squeeze of too few dollars. Maybe you can put yourself a little bit in the shoes of the Smyrnans. Seem to have, however, the Smyrnans taken that that pressure in stride, and they had allowed it to refine their character to the place where Jesus said, you're poor as church mice if I look at you on the outside, but I can see past that, and you are spiritually rich on the inside. It was Jesus' way of telling that little church that he was proud of the way that they were holding up, proud of the way that they were responding to the difficulties and the pressures that they were facing. But Jesus then told them that there was even more pain, even more pressure that was coming their way, and nobody ever receives that as good news. I kept hoping after I'd read the scriptures for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and had been praying and and, and doing what we do here, and and reading and studying and, and asking the Lord to shape me, that at some point I could become that guy who really believes what the scriptures teach, that the pressures and the hurt that come our way are allowed or caused by God himself for our good and to strengthen us. And I hope that I'd be the guy who, when he saw the difficulties coming, went, hot dog, I'm about to become a better man, and I am not there yet. And you? How many say, one more thing, instead of, one more thing? When Jesus spoke to the church at Smyrna, he said, you're doing great. I I know that it's hard. You're doing great. But I got to tell you, There's more pain and pressure coming your way. And it wasn't going to be random tragedy either. Jesus told them that their upcoming pain would have a purpose. The purpose would be that this was was going to be a test of their faith. And in the time that we have left together today, I want to look at the idea of the testing of our faith and to teach you three things. Number one, how to recognize a test of your faith. Number two, how to pass that test. And number three, what's the result of passing the test. As I described to you earlier, the city of Smyrna and the religion of Sibylle that had developed there, uh, did, did you notice some parallels between the way the average Smyrnan thought of her and the way that we think of Jesus? 
When Jesus opened his letter to the Smyrna church with, these are the words of the one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again, Jesus was saying, you get it, Smyrna Christians, you get it, you really get it, you've really come to understand who the true God is, and it isn't Sibley, it's me. By living among the human race and and dying an undeniable and agonizing death and then equally, undeniably being resurrected from the dead, I have proved that I am the one true God and you Smyrna Christians get it. You've proven that your faith is real. You've been through some real tests. I have some news, however, that might not seem too good. The testing isn't over and it's going to get more difficult. Testing of our faith. Make your blood run cold like it does mine. Leave my faith alone, Jesus. I'm plenty good. Can I get into heaven just like this? Trusting you? No tests needed here. I'll be fine. Sometimes feel like that, don't we? You ever wonder what the purpose of the testing of our faith is? I mean, doesn't, doesn't God know everything? Doesn't he know the condition of our hearts like you were talking earlier, Cliff? He does. The testing of our faith never was intended to prove anything to God. Tests then are not about proving anything to God. They're all about helping you and I to understand ourselves and the condition of our own faith. In my work with Christians, I've observed that most people think that their faith is pretty puny quite small. They wonder if their faith will see them through the the potential heartaches that come later on in life, let alone give them the strength to really face persecution should that ever come. What do you think about this strength of your own faith today? God provides or allows tests not to, to so that he can see if our faith is strong enough to get us to the finish line, but to build our faith through controlled adversity and then to prove to us that our faith is strong enough to get us there. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, you're doing great thus far, but there are more tests coming. And by the miracle of inspiration that I talked about and taught last week, this same message comes to you and I today, to this church, as God breathed. There's some tests coming. Lewiston, First Church of the Nazarene. So let's get ready for them by considering how to recognize tests, how to pass them, and the results of doing so. Let's talk about how to recognize a spiritual test. Most of us have a hard time distinguishing, I think, tests from temptation. So let me give you some working definitions for those two words. Temptation asks a question. Will you give in to a deep desire for something you very much want but what you also know is sinfully wrong, that's temptation. Okay? Testing asks, will you give up and do something you don't really want to do because you don't want to be uncomfortable any longer? Let me say it again. Temptation asks the question, um, will you give in to a deep desire for something you deeply, deeply want? Testing asks, will you give up? And do something you don't want to do just because you don't want to be uncomfortable anymore. Testing generally involves some evil that you have hoped to avoid. Let me illustrate. Students, you want to make a good grade, better one than you think you can earn on your own, so you cheat during a test to get that thing that you deeply desire. 
uh, that you know is wrong. You just failed in the face of temptation. Adults, you really want something that belongs to someone else, so you take it when no one's watching. You've just failed in the face of temptation. Okay, both those things, temptation, things you deeply desire. Students, you don't want to be a hypocrite, but neither do you want to be made fun of, so you're in a social setting where someone offers you weed or alcohol, and you don't want it, but you give in. Both are illegal for you, and you have just failed the test of your faith. You didn't take something you wanted, you took something you didn't want and failed the test. Adults, you want to be a faithful witness for Jesus, but you don't want people to reject you. You don't want that relational awkwardness with coworkers or family members or your people at the gym. So God throws open this door that you've been asking him for so that you can have a spiritual conversation, but you won't walk through it. You just stay quiet. Your faith was just tested and was found weak. We've all faced some of those situations, haven't we? Or all of them? Sure. Temptations I'll have to leave for another day, but we're going to talk about tests today. When you recognize that your faith is being tested, you're feeling the pressure, you've been avoiding some evil, you've been doing pretty good so far, but you are seeing the end of your own personal strength, and you don't know if you're going to have the courage, the strength, or the endurance to stand for much longer, and you're thinking about just giving in to get this whole thing over with. How can you get a win when you find yourself in those circumstances? Let me give you four things. Number one, embrace Embrace the test. Embrace the test. It's important to understand that tests are opportunities to fail, but they're also opportunities not just to pass, but to gain strength. In the middle of the test, there is an option other than pass-fail. There is an option to get stronger so that you are more able to face the next test when it comes. There are opportunities to have your faith affirmed, for you to be encouraged by, by how far you have come in this growing up process. Instead of worrying, fearing, or despising the pressure that you're going through, instead of whining and begging God to let you out of the hot box, embrace the test for what it is, an opportunity for great good in your life. If you live in fear, if you are constantly in a defensive position against the test, you are not going to pass it. But if you embrace the test for what it can make of you, You've taken a first step in the right direction toward passing it. Step number two, admit your strength and your weaknesses. In Mark chapter 9, the story is told of a man who faced something that he very much wanted no part of. He talked to Jesus about it, then admitted that, that he had a mixture of faith and of doubt. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He probably expected Jesus to lecture him for having little bitty tiny faith. Instead, Jesus responded, get this, by giving the man exactly what he asked for and needed when he admitted both his strength and his weakness. When you and I recognize that we're facing a period of testing, it's important that we embrace the test and then tell God exactly where we are in the deal where we're strong, where we're weak, where we're struggling with doubts, where we're easily trusting him, and that we live somewhere between strength and weakness and acknowledge that we need his help. Listen, God is really attracted to that kind of self-awareness and honesty, and he comes running the direction of everyone who asks for help, who admits that they have both some strength and some weakness, some, some trust and some doubt. You want to pass the test? 
Embrace the test and then admit your strengths and your weaknesses. Third, ask for his help and get ready to win. Ask for his help and get ready to win. My experience in testing has been this. If I will embrace the challenge that testing is and will admit to God my need for him and then ask for help, God has never, not one time ever, let me down. When I have whined and tried to hold on under my own power, when I've been resisting God and his work in my life, I have failed plenty of times. But when I have embraced the test, admitted my strength and my weakness, and said, God, I need your help or I'm not going to make it. Every single time I can remember, God has come running my way and said, that's what I'm talking about. You and I will do this together. And I found strength, endurance, the ability to keep, oh, to do the next thing which is to hang in there just a little while longer. You see, there's some times in life when the test has to last longer in order for it to have the desired effect in your life. Victories in testing times don't always come the minute that we ask for help. But God told us in Isaiah 40 that if we'll wait on him to to do his thing, we will experience an amazing spiritual dynamic that is not at all natural. He said that if we wait on him to do his thing, instead of growing more and more weary until we fail, we will actually find our strength building, growing, increasing to the point that it feels like we are eventually flying above the struggle. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. There's a spiritual reality at work here. There's a deep mystery and illogical. And it has been proven true millions of times over. I have a friend who for 25 years was a cocaine and marijuana addict. Through a process of of growing awareness of the will of God for his life, he came to the place where he decided that he was going to walk away from that lifestyle. Yes, it was temptation, not testing, but in this case, the truth remains. After getting clean, And living a couple of years, a few nights spent on my couch when he said, I'm going to the dealer or to your house. A couple years later, after after being clean and living it, he said to me, Cliff, I wish all the people who gave up could realize how close they were to a breakthrough. If you hang in there with God during your time of testing, if you hang in there just a little while longer, you will begin to experience a divine mystery wherein God begins to build your strength instead of your strength slipping away. And you will overcome the struggle and pass that test. Finally, this morning, I want to talk about the results of passing life's faith tests. In his letter to the Smyrnans, Jesus revealed two things that would come as a result of passing the tests of our faith. The first is, he said we would receive a crown. Now, to most of us, that is rather unappealing because we're Americans. We're not really into the whole royalty thing. Somebody came to me this week and said, you know, I've had about enough. What do you say we overthrow the royal family of England? So we just don't have to deal with them anymore. That's the way Americans think of royalty and crowns. Even if we were into the whole royalty thing, we'd be into it as Americans for the power and the money, not for the goofy headgear, right? 
So the promise of a crown just doesn't mean a whole lot, doesn't work very well for most of us. What was Jesus trying to convey by that promise? Well, the Greek passage actually says that we would be given a crown which is life. Okay, It's not a crown that says life and you're stuck wearing the goofy hat for the rest of your life. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you this thing that will grace your head and your and, and your life, and it's my life given to you, the resurrection life, the one that will never end, the one that has limitless power. I will give you the crown, which is my life. The crown is just a metaphor. It blows with the wind. You can change it if you want to. Find a better way of explaining it. But the life, that never ends, and it's a defining thing in our faith. We are not a people who are trying to follow a list of rules to please a God so that we, what, get trapped being with this harsh, demanding overlord for all of eternity? That is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is this, that God gives life to all who grant it, real life that sets you free from things like oppressive religious law and harsh overlords. Sibylle? She ruled with an iron fist. Zeus, temperamental bugger. You better stay on on the dark side of the moon from him. Our God is a God who comes with love and offers life and says, I'd like to share it with you here and now and at some point in the future in a way that is beyond what you can understand by living in this human body with all of its brokenness. He said, I want to give you life. He said... There was a crown that graced the head of their goddess, and it was really nothing more than than an outline of their immediate surroundings that they had built with their own hands, which would one day be destroyed by some conquering army or, or eventually worn away by wind and water. But Jesus promised to his followers in Smyrna a far better crown, life itself, Life that is so indestructible that it would leave them, get this, fearless of ever experiencing any pain on the day of judgment. He said that that, that phrase, the second death, was the, the Jewish way of referring to the judgment that would come against evil and evil people. And Jesus said, listen, hang in there with me. I'm going to get you through this testing of your faith, but you're going to have to hang in there with me a little bit longer. Embrace the test for what it is. It's an opportunity for you to get stronger. While you're at it, why don't you just admit to me what I already know It's that you have some strengths and some weaknesses and ask me for some help. I will then get in that set of circumstances with you I will help you hang on just a little bit longer while I continue to move the chess pieces around the board that will bring about your eventual victory. And when you and I together have achieved victory in this test against for your faith, I will then reward you with life itself and this thing that stretches all the way out into eternity so that at the day of judgment, you don't have to worry about any pain whatsoever. If you grew up in the church, like I did, then you heard a fair amount about the judgment. Dun, dun, dun. And it was said with the dun, dun, dun to make you afraid. Listen, fear of judgment 
is to be unknown among the people of God. I guess I will say thank you that somebody long ago said the day of judgment to me to wake me up for just a moment and help me realize that I was a man who could be judged and found guilty. But I am all the more grateful that I have heard countless times since then that it is possible for me to live this day and all the days the rest of my life without worrying about what's going to happen on that day. So that like Jesus himself, I can say on that great day, because it will be the day that ultimately, by the help of God's Holy Spirit, unleashed on the church at Pentecost, I will have been found faithful. All the good work that Jesus accomplished in me, I'm going to get the, the rewards for it. That's a crazy good deal, by the way, people. If you're bargain shoppers, salvation is the best, best deal out there. God does all this fantastic work in you, and then you get the rewards for it. But I want to offer you something that I have personally experienced that has, has really been the rule of the day in my heart now for decades. It's possible to live without fear of the judgment of God. Listen, you're going to go through some tests. If you want to, we can, we can, we can hook arms and, and get through some of that together. That's, uh, by the way, um, part of the reason that God designed Christianity as a community faith instead of an independent solo religion so that we together could get through some of these tests. I want you to know, it, it, it very definitely is, is such a, a minor part of this letter, but it's the part that grabbed my attention. I want you to know that you can live without fear of judgment from God. And it happens like this. Among all the stories of the gods and goddesses that were told to the people of Smyrna, I want to highlight in your thinking one more time the story of a man named Jesus, a God who came and lived on this earth. It's either crazy or true. He lived as a man, subject to the same things that you and I face in terms of temptation. But he relied on his father, and he admitted his strength and his weakness, and he embraced those tests, and he asked for help, and he hung in there. He lived like a man, like a woman. He was found faithful. Instead of being given life, do you know what he was given? Death. And he said, I'll take that so that none of you have to suffer that second death. And if you, like me, are either crazy enough, reasonable enough, or desperate enough to know that you need that work in your life, somebody else to take the blame for you, somebody else to take the punishment for you, and to give you the life that he deserves, then I would invite you to join me in this faith. Even if it sounds a little bit outlandish to you, the word for faith in Hebrew is a word picture. It's of a chair. You know what? When I uh, go to sit down on this chair, I don't usually give it a couple of these, and I don't usually just kind of hover above it. I usually just kind of do this. You know why? Because I trust chairs to do their thing. I trust chairness. Because that's what a chair does, is it holds you up off the floor. This is the picture of faith. Would you cast your full weight on the story of the God who became a man 
so that the people, sinful and in need of a Savior, could experience life in the here and now that lasts into eternity and leaves you fearless and untouchable on the day of judgment. See, I bet on this chair every time I cast my weight on it. What we're saying today isn't you have to have no questions. What we're saying is cast your weight on it and see if it doesn't hold you up. Not the chair. Jesus. I'd ask you to stand with me, bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to open the altars today for this. If you recognize that you're going through a time of testing and you feel like your knees are getting weak and you want somebody to just pray with you and, and, and help you find a way to hang in there a little bit longer. Listen, no judgments, okay? You don't even have to tell us what it is. You just need a brother or a sister to come and pray with you so that you can make it through the testing of your faith. Then I want to invite you to come and kneel at these altars. Um, Pastor Bill and church board, I want you ready to pray with people as they come, okay? And, and, and certainly not limited to them. You have a friend who comes and kneels here, get down here and pray with them, okay? Valerie's here. She needs some help. She needs somebody to hang in there with her. She's going to get the help that she needs today. How about you? Facing a test, leaves you wobbly. He's good for the help. So are we. I want to ask you to, again, just to, to allow the person next to you privacy. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I wonder if today there's, there are folks here who are saying, you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about judgment. When that day comes, I've got some explaining to do. I've sinned and I know it. And it leaves me just wanting to hide from God. And if... Uh, if the scripture's right, I won't be able to hide that day. So what I'd like to do is to be able to face God and say, I've been forgiven and I know it. So if, if today you're, you're fearing that judgment and you're saying, Pastor, pray for me, would you slip your hand up and right back down? I see you back there. Yep. Anybody else? Yep, okay. Yep. Yep. All right, Lord Jesus. I want to ask you, I know you're going to help Valerie. We're going to pray for her in a minute, but I want to ask you right now to attend to the souls of the people who raised their hands and said, I'm, I'm worried about that day. And I want to ask that you would now have a conversation with their hearts in which you express to them, Father, your willingness to forgive. Jesus, you're expressing how glad you are to call them brother and sister you, they're acknowledging their, their strength and their weakness to you now, Lord Jesus. Tell them you already knew that and still accepted them and loved them. And now as they ask for forgiveness, I pray that you grant both that and everlasting life. But I also pray that you take away the fear that has gripped their hearts up until this moment. Lord, I thank you that I can trust you to do that. You have this daughter over here. We have a sister. She's been trusting in you. For the first time, it was uh, last Sunday that I heard that weakness in her voice. And uh, she's freely admitting 
her need right now, for you to strengthen her, give her endurance, and to return some joy to her heart. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for what you have done and are continuing to do in Brooke's body. Finish the work, Lord. Put him back together. Make him whole. Between now and then, Valerie needs your help. She needs you to be close enough that that you can't be ignored. She needs you to be so present that it's undeniable that you're in that house with her and Brooke and the kids. And she takes care of all the responsibilities that she has to shoulder now, Lord. She needs some days when there's energy that doesn't make sense. She needs the ability to um, whistle while she works. You hear somebody whistling, it's because they're always it's it's always because they're happy, and she needs the ability to do that Lord, because you return the joy to her heart. $4,700 is a great start, and it is not enough to come close to meeting their medical bills and their needs. We need you to, to come and uh, provide for them, Lord. But you have allowed this test. And so we bring the Schatz family to you and ask together that you would do that thing that you described in Isaiah 40, that instead of them growing weary, they'd get stronger as they go that you would build their strength to the place that it feels like they're soaring like eagles. Again, that's either crazy talk or it's a divine mystery that's beautiful and good, and we believe the latter, and we believe it for Valerie and Brooke and the kids, and we ask for it confidently and in Jesus' name. Yeah. Lord, get some glory for yourself. And all of this, you're a glorious God. You deserve, the world itself knows that enough bad things are said about you. Enough accusing things are said against your character. We would love for you to just get some glory for yourself from this situation. We've asked for good for the Schatz family. Now we want you to know we're committed to you getting glory from this as well. Thank you for the privilege of being the church part of the church in Lewiston, Idaho. You've given us ears to hear what your spirit says to this church. We will continue to listen for your voice as we go. Thanks for being close to us today, Lord. In your holy name, we pray. And before I say a final amen, I just want to mention two more things. Um, Timo has been with us for a school year now with Paul's family, and he's become part of our church family, and it's his uh, last Sunday with us here. His mom and dad are here. We want, to, we want to thank you for loaning us your son for a school year. We've grown to love him. We're going to miss you. We want you to know you've always got a home here, okay? And Eric's heading out soon, t- tomorrow morning, heading off to serve our nation. He's going to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, right? Dude, it's hot and sticky and chiggery back there. we got to talk, okay? But we want you to know that your church family loves you. We honor you. We bless you. God's got a plan, and he's going to use you. I've watched 
the spiritual growth that's taken place over the last three years that I've known you. I'm proud of who you are, Eric, and your church family um, believes in good things for you. We're going to be praying for you while you're gone. You're going to go through a test. You're going to want to quit. Hang in there. Would you just lift a hand this way toward these two young men so that we can pray for them? Lord Jesus, with whatever authority you've given to your church, we confer on them the blessings of God. Peace, when it doesn't make sense to have peace. Strength, when theirs runs out. And the assurance of your love and ours. We thank you for the time you have granted us with these two fine young men. We pray now that as they leave us, they too would go with the assurance of your presence with them. Protect them. Be their constant companion. Show yourself to be their friend and Savior and Lord. We very much want you to bring them back to us again, Lord. We ask humbly and in Jesus' name.